We go through uh, the Bible verse by verse at uh, Renew, and so last week we were looking at Jesus uh, coming to his hometown of Nazareth and his rejection there, and we dwelled upon how Jesus' lowliness, his coming as, as a human being and living amongst us and being as common as a carpenter uh, is part of God's marvelous revelation of his grace towards us that he, he has become one of us so that in Jesus he can take our place to pay for our sins. So last week we dwelled upon the lowliness of Jesus. This week Mark takes us from, from that revelation to another important truth about Jesus, and that is that Jesus is the long-sought leader of his people, the leader that we, that we need. Now, when we talk about the, the topic of leadership, it, is, it doesn't take very long to recognize that we live in a, a world that is in a crisis of leadership. I, I would say most of the things that are frustrating us, that are making us angry, that are dividing us as a, as a people, have a lot to do with failures in leadership. And so when we look at the, uh, the, the situation of leadership, can we go to the next slide? Yeah, Jesus is a leader that we need, and then the next one. <laughs> yeah. uh, we are living in a leadership crisis. So you, 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 you probably all um, deal with, on a regular basis, a, a boss that's causing you more grief than help. <laughs> uh, has anybody here had a, a boss that, that they thought, man, that, that, that guy's the problem? It's funny how we all seem to have that experience. Uh, none of my people raise their hand, I hope. Uh, <laughs> but but there, there is uh, bosses that are causing us sleepless nights, that are wearing us out, and that is a, a failure of leadership, a failure of their ability to, to, to help us and be the, the people that we need to, to flourish in our workplaces and in our jobs. But we also know there's other leadership problems. So if you, if you think maybe about politics, and, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's just nothing but, but angst when we think about, about politics. I mean, the, the Simpsons, which I'm a, I'm a Simpsons guy, um, they, uh, they get it right. So there's a, there's a classic episode way back in the 90s, and it's a, it's a Halloween episode, and they, they have uh, aliens take over the presidential race of the United States, and uh, there's, there's Korg and Kronos, and they're both going to destroy the world if they're elected. But there's just no choice because it's a two-party system. So, so they, one of those two gets, gets elected. And I feel like, maybe you feel like the same way, that it is becoming a constant battle of elections between Korg and Kronos in our, in our worlds today. It's like, who, who do we pick? Which poison are we going to drink this year? And that's frustrating. There's a lot of angst about the leadership and the leadership that, that we have. And the other evidence of, of our leadership crisis is, is quite shocking. When it, when it comes down to just our trust in public officials, our trust in leaders in our world. This is a, a Gallup poll. I know it's kind of hard to read, but it, it, it monitors the trust that the average person has based on different professions. And right now, leading the list are nurses, uh, they have about 80% of trust in the, in, in the public, but that's even down. It was 85% uh, during the pandemic, but it, it, it's come down. Medical doctors are second, pharmacists are third, 
High school teachers made, made the list in, in being above 50%. And then police officers are exactly 50% of the public trusts them and 50% do not. And everything below that is below 50% of, of public trust, which breaks my heart because the next listed profession is clergy. In fact, clergy is 32 or 36% of the public uh, innately trust clergy as a, as a trustworthy profession. And we can, we can uh, as, a, as a clergyman myself, I can point the finger and be like, how dare you not trust the clergy? But why don't they trust? Why is trust not 100%? Because leadership in all of these sectors has failed the public trust has failed to be the integrity that, that, that they're supposed to have, has, has failed to stand for the truth, has failed to do the right thing. There is, uh, I, I don't need to list the number of reasons why clergy have lost the public trust. But this is a, a, a warning sign of the crisis in leadership, that the, the places where we should be able to look up to and trust, we can't. How do we know we're in a crisis of leadership? I would say if, there, if you were to put a finger on the two probably most prevalent emotions that we experience uh, in our current situation, it's anger and despair. Anger and despair seem to be the, the highest felt feelings in every generation in our world today. And I would suggest that at the root of all of that anger and the root of all of that despair is that we do not see leaders who are going to lead us through the mess or through the problems that we have. So the dilemma is that we need leadership. Leadership is absolutely essential for, for us to, to get through this world. But the leadership that we have everywhere we look only seems to make things worse. Well, this is the exact same situation that was in, in the story of the first century, the story of, of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, they, they had, uh, I mean, awful leaders. We, we, we skipped uh, reading the passage, but we're going to go through it. The leader of, of the people in Galilee was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a, a terrible leader, a corrupt leader, a leader who used and abused his people. And so what we have in, in our day and, and the day of the scriptures is a similar crisis of leadership. And this passage is actually going to present to us the, the good news that as we face a crisis of leadership, God has answered that by sending us his son who is the leader that we need. We're going to see in this passage that, that Jesus is contrasted against all of the bad and corrupt and failing leadership that we endure, and that Jesus has come to be the leader that we need. Now, in the Bible, we don't run across the word leader over and over again. The, the word that we come across and the idea that we come across is the concept of shepherd. When the Bible speaks of leadership in the Bible, it uses the, the description of a shepherd. A leader is supposed to be a shepherd, just like a, a, a shepherd to, to, to a literal flock of sheep. A leader is supposed to take care of their people as, as a flock of sheep. And so in the background of our passage today is uh, a, 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 an indictment that God gives to the leadership of Israel in Ezekiel 34, where he calls the people, uh, he calls the shepherds of the day, failed shepherds, 
wrong shepherds, bad shepherds. And we're going to see in the background of our passage that, that Ezekiel 34 is very much in the mind of Mark as he presents Jesus in the contrast of the bad shepherds. He presents Jesus instead as the good shepherd. So we're going to go through this passage and see how Jesus is the good shepherd. But what's my purpose today? My purpose for you is to show you as you struggle with leadership crises in your world, is that Jesus is the leader that you need. And that as you struggle with trust of so many different leaders, Jesus is the leader that you can trust in for whatever you face, for whatever may come your way. You can trust Jesus with all of your life. So what makes Jesus the good shepherd? We're going to look at three uh, answers to what makes Jesus the good shepherd. We're going to see that Jesus gathers his sheep, that Jesus feeds his sheep, and then finally that Jesus gives his life for his sheep. So we're going to go through this passage. First, we're going to look at that first section where Jesus sends out the disciples, verses 7 to 13, and we see here that Jesus gathers his sheep. Jesus gathers his sheep. So Jesus has, uh, for the first time, looked at his 12 disciples who we, we saw gathered over the last several uh, chapters. He's gathered these disciples, and these disciples have been accompanying him on ministry. But for the first time, Jesus is going to send his disciples out to do their primary mission, which is to uh, proclaim the, the good news of Jesus to the cities of, of Israel. And so Jesus sends out the 12 to proclaim the good news. Now, uh, this is an important, to grasp what Jesus is doing and sending out the 12 is important to remember the number 12. Why did Jesus call 12 disciples? We, 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 we saw that the, the calling of 12 disciples was a way for Jesus to parallel the, the tribes of Israel. There were, God called the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus calls the 12 disciples. So the 12 tribes of Israel form the people of God, and as Jesus is, 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 is restoring the people of God, he deliberately calls 12 disciples. Now, the number 12 was also important because who is not counted in the 12? Jesus. Just like God does not count himself among the 12 tribes, Jesus does not count himself among the 12 disciples. And the reason is that Jesus is, in, is, is indicating that his position amongst the people is the same as the position of God to Israel. He is the, as God is the center of the 12 tribes, Jesus is the center of the, of the people of God the, through the 12 disciples. And so when Jesus sends out these 12, he is doing a work of restoring the lost people of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. He is sending out the 12 seeking to renew Israel. This is made explicit if you go to the Gospel of Matthew and look at the parallel account where we are told this. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is very important. This is how we recognize that, 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 that Jesus is, is functioning as a shepherd here of gathering his sheep. He is taking his 12 disciples and giving them the responsibility to go through all the different towns of Israel to reach the lost sheep of Israel. So the focus right now is to gather these lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is gathering the remnant. He is gathering the lost sheep. And where is he gathering them to? 
He's gathering them to himself. So you recognize, once again, Jesus implicitly is functioning as the God-man because he is placing himself where only God belongs. He is assembling the lost sheep of Israel to himself. He is also revealing himself, once again, as God in the flesh. Now, when we talk about these lost sheep, who are these lost sheep? The, the word lost sheep has a, has a clear meaning in Scripture, and that's where we uh, first go back to Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God sends his prophet, named Ezekiel, to, to speak to the leaders of Israel and what they were doing and failing as leaders. And he describes their failure as uh, a failure of shepherding. In Ezekiel 34, verse 4, he says this, The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. So you see this, this description of lost sheep. The sheep are God's sheep. And the shepherds, because of their inept, poor leadership, have caused the sheep to go astray. God describes through Ezekiel that the, the sheep, the people of Israel, the people who were supposed to be cared for by the shepherds, have instead become weak and sick and injured and strayed and lost. This is the condition of the sheep because of the shepherds failing to be good shepherds. When we, when we say that they're, they're weak, what is, what is, what's the source of weakness? The weakness of a, of a sheep comes from being poorly fed, not nourished. The shepherds were not giving the sheep the food that they needed. And what is the food that they most desperately needed? It was the word of God. But these sheep in Israel were being malnourished. They were becoming weak because they were not being fed. Some of them were even worse. They were, they were sick. H how do we become sick? Sick involves a, a virus coming in or, or perhaps uh, receiving a, a poison, something that, that goes contrary to our health, that actually attacks our health. And so we're, we're told that the, the sheep are, are, are sick uh, they're, they're, they're like, they're poisoned. What, 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 what might be poisoning sheep? Uh, that would be not just poor teaching or inadequate teaching, but, but false teaching. The, the, the sheep were, were not just uh, eating a, a, a thin gruel of God's word, but in some places they were being given morsels of false teaching, of error. Of, 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 of teaching that would lead them away from trusting in God. So they're, they're being poisoned. And then we talk about injured. How, how do sheep become injured? Well, somehow or another, they're being, they're being afflicted. They're being uh, attacked. They're being beaten. And so here we, we, we have an image of the shepherds actually abusing uh, their sheep actually causing their sheep to be injured. And then finally, 
there's there's the strayed and lost sheep. That means that these sheep have been so poorly watched that they have left the safety of the pasture and have gone off into unknown and unsafe places. And they have strayed. So we have have this description of poorly fed, poisoned, uh, injured, who have lost trust or have been abused. And then the the strain and the lost, which, which describes maybe the drift of, of the, the sheep or the people of Israel. Does this describe today? Are there parallels to all of this today? Absolutely. And there was a time in this sermon where I had a whole long rat list of, of, of examples. But the real uh, prime, premium, focused evidence that the shepherds today are not taking care of the sheep is the the phenomenon that we're experiencing at a massive scale called de-churching. De-churching is the phenomenon of people who used to be part of a church, used to go to church, but have now made the decision not to be part of a church. And in fact, there's a a new book describing the the phenomenon of de-churching and what is causing it uh, called uh, The the Great De-churching. And it says this in the book. It says that about 40 million adults in America today used to go to church, but no longer do. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham's Crusades combined. For some reason, 40 million people in our country have turned away from the church, not finding the church as the place that provides them the, 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 the leadership and the shepherding that they need. That's over the last 25 years. That's a dramatic number. And that number shows no signs of slowing down. So yeah, We live in a leadership crisis, and we live in an age where we are seeing weak, sick, injured, and strayed, and lost sheep, and they're being counted by the millions. Well, that requires me to ask the question, how's your faith? How's your faith? Are you feeling weak? Do you feel like you are being fed with the truth? Do you, do you feel sick? Do you feel like, like your, your grasp and your closeness and your clarity with Jesus and the truth is becoming fainter and fainter and more and more confusing? Have you, have you felt injured? Have you felt your trust violated in the church? Are you strained? Is the regularity of your being part of a church the same as it was five years ago? Or are you finding yourself finding more reasons to not make Sunday part of your life? Do you find more and more reasons to skip than reasons to come? Are you part 
of these sheep that God's heart goes out to. What does God say about you? He says, you're my sheep. And I miss you. And I want you to be fed. I want you to be made well. I want you to be drawn close. This is God's heart. And it breaks that you have, have, have experienced these kinds of harms. Look at Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. You see, God is angry that, that this has happened, that so many people have strayed and so many people have been dechurched. His heart is to bring you back. His heart is to restore you. And how do you know that his heart is to bring you back and to restore you? Because he sent his son, Jesus. He sent his son, Jesus, to be the shepherd that rescues you from every kind of lostness. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God through Christ. Christ is the shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd who will bring you home, who will gather you. And he has been sent to do just that. How? How does God gather his sheep through Jesus? Well, he sends his disciples out to make Jesus known. And the way they make Jesus known is through a surprising word. It's in verse 12. The disciples go out and they preach repentance. They preach, repent. Now, the word repent is not a word that we use very often, and it's often a word we don't have a very high association with. It sounds negative. It sounds uh, punitive. It sounds shameful to be hearing the word repent. And perhaps we have drifted away from the word repent because that has been its deep association. But the word repent is given to us because it is in turning back to Jesus that you will be strengthened, that you will be healed, that you will be uh, restored from, from abuse and mistrust, that you will be brought back from straying. It is only by returning to Jesus that we can hope to have these terrible uh, ailments removed from us. Listen. If you are weak, turn to him. If you are sick, turn to him. If you are injured, if you are one of those precious people who have been abused or mistreated or had your trust violated by, by the church, I am so sorry for you. But turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. And let him bind your wounds. If you are straying, if you are wandering into other pastures, turn. There is no better pasture than the pasture at the feet of Jesus. Now listen. Jesus tells us in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, in the word repent is the word of your shepherd. Do you hear your shepherd calling you back to him. 
respond to this word, repent and return to him. Jesus gathers his sheep by calling to him, to, uh, calling them to repentance. And so my question, are you hearing his call? Are you hearing him reach out to you and say, come back to me? Repent, beloved. Jesus gathers his sheep, but second we see Jesus feeds his sheep. And now we go down to verses 30 to 44, and we go to that passage that is one of the most well-known in all of of Jesus' ministry, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. So verse 30 picks up right where uh, the disciples come home from their going out and sharing the gospel, and they return to Jesus, and they tell him all the good news that has happened, but they also share that they are tired. They are tired and they, they need rest. And so Jesus takes them to him and says, let us go to a desolate place where we can rest. Jesus here is, is seeking to shepherd the disciples and give them rest. And so he takes them to a desolate place. But Jesus' ministry is so popular and it's become even more popular because of the, the preaching of the disciples that people actually run to this desolate place to meet Jesus before he and the disciples can get there. You see, they are hearing their shepherd's voice. And how how do you know they are hearing their shepherd's voice? Because they are being drawn to him. They are running to him. They want to be in his presence. And so the shepherd's voice, they are hearing it. And that is what is bringing them out to the desolate place where Jesus is. And so when Jesus gets on the other side of the shore where he thought there was going to be a place for just the disciples, he instead finds a crowd that has at least 5,000 men in it. When you add women and children, we are probably talking about fifteen or 20,000 in this crowd. And here is the picture. Jesus is in a desolate place with the lost sheep of Israel gathered around him. And they are seeking him for food. Does this image of God's people being in a desolate place remind you of anything in the past of of the story of Israel? It is looking exactly like Moses in the wilderness with all of the people needing to be fed. And they were fed the manna. And so we have here God's people gathering around this next great leader, this one named Jesus. Now there's a second picture, not just Moses in the wilderness that that this passage is causing us to think about, but Mark also wants us to think about another passage. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. The word green grass is, a, is, is an extra detail that in the Gospel of Mark, you don't find a whole lot of adjectives. You don't find a whole lot of details like that. But here, here Mark wants to stress that these people are sitting down on green grass. And they are at the s- seashore of the Sea of Galilee. So what does Jesus do here? He sits people down beside still waters on the green grass. What is the picture that Jesus wants us to have in mind as we see him here feeding the 5,000? 
He wants us to hear the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, Jesus, right here in this desolate place, is revealing himself as the incarnation of the 23rd Psalm. He is the shepherd, the Lord in their midst. Jesus is the good shepherd. Now let's dwell on the goodness of Jesus as our shepherd. There are, are three attributes of his goodness that really come out in this passage that I want us to, to, to feast on. The goodness of our shepherd is shown first in that Jesus serves out of a deep love for his sheep. Jesus serves out of a deep love for his sheep. Listen, Jesus comes to this desolate place because he himself is tired. He himself has been exhausted by ministry. He's looking for a weekend. All right? And yet, when he gets there, his own self-need, his own desire for restoration, he does not put above the people and their needs. No, what moves him is not his exhaustion. What moves him is his guts, which are absolutely turning and, and, and convulsing in compassion and, and, and desire to care for these people. The word that, that is in the Greek for, for Jesus' compassion is, is splagnon, which is a, an ugly-sounding word, but it has the most beautiful meaning. Splagnon is, is saying that, that, that the guts, the deep-down intestines, they are motivating the action here. This is, this is from the core. This is from the deepest part of Jesus. It is being moved for these people. This is, this is the part that moves you to jump in front of a car to get your kid out of danger. And we are being told that Jesus' guts are being roiled and moved because he is so full of love and concern for these lost sheep that it is the singular thing that makes him act is his compassion. Once again, we see, like with last week, where we encountered Jesus' lowliness and gentleness in his heart, here we see his heart is so full of compassion and love. This is the Jesus that is our shepherd. Second, we see the goodness of our shepherd in the fact that he feeds his sheep. Whereas the bad shepherds take the food for themselves, Jesus feeds his sheep. And he feeds them in the two ways that they need. He feeds them spiritually. The first thing Jesus does when he's moved with compassion is he teaches them. He teaches them. Do we recognize that the thing that we need fed most the thing that we need to be fed first is the truth of God's word. We are more malnourished in our knowledge of God for our lack of being fed the word of God that when we look at our overall condition, Jesus says that is the severest. 
And I'm not saying that there weren't physical needs. He met the physical needs too. He met their hunger in their stomach. But what he dealt with first was to feed them the food of the word of God. But then also he recognizes that they are hungry, that they are wary people. And he uh, uh, insists that they be fed. And of course, this is a magnificent moment of teaching the disciples about trusting in God and, and, and knowing that God will provide. And if we had uh, twice as long for the sermon, I would dwell more on that. But I want us to focus on the, on the fact that Jesus is the shepherd who feeds his people. He takes the, the five loaves and the two fishes and he multiplies them so that everyone is fed. And the third thing that we see about the goodness of our shepherd is that he doesn't just feed us. He satisfies us. He satisfies us. Look down at verses 42 and 43. It says that all were fed and satisfied. And satisfied. Do you think satisfied was a feeling the average poor person in Israel living around the Lake of Galilee felt very often. Do you think these people were accustomed to ever having to loosen their belt because that meal was so filling? But that is what Jesus left these 5,000 people feeling. They hadn't felt satisfied. They had felt like they were getting by or barely making it. But here for a brief moment, Jesus says, you want to be satisfied? I satisfy. I satisfy. How many of you today are just living the Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get to a place where I feel good, where I feel whole, where I feel belonging. How many of us are struggling with just a moment of satisfaction? The good news is that our shepherd has come to satisfy, to give us all that we need and more. As we are told in uh, John 6.35, the parallel account, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the bread of life. He is saying, I am more than the satisfaction of a meal. I am the satisfaction of your heart, the satisfaction of your soul. Many of us have ached so long with an unsatisfied soul that we don't even recognize its hunger anymore. I'm told that, that people who do not eat food for, for days and days and days and days, even though they are absolutely starving, cannot feel the hunger pangs because their, their body has, has so shut down. Some of us in this room have had your soul so malnourished that it is like a starved stomach. It does not even recognize what it is missing. But your life 
you still have the evidence of a life that just feels flat, that just feels overly hard, that just feels so difficult. And I want to say to you, have you let Jesus satisfy your soul? Have you allowed the joy of the good shepherd to dwell in your heart? There is satisfaction that is so high and so beautiful that we call it abundant joy. And that is what Jesus provides. You see, the abundance that, that, that Jesus shows in this uh, miracle with 12 baskets of leftovers, even after everybody is satisfied, is a picture of the abundance of the glory of the coming kingdom. Jesus shows us in this, in this miracle that he is the one that supplies the belonging that you crave, the meaning that you crave, the love that you crave, the rest that you crave. He satisfies. Come. Come to the Lord. And you will be satisfied. Now, what does this mean for us as followers? What does is, what is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 mean for us as people following Jesus? Well, the purpose of this whole story is to let all of us know that he will provide for us wherever he sends us. He teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray for our daily bread as a reminder that he takes care of you day in and day out. So friend, where do you need to be reminded today that your shepherd will provide? Where are you allowing anxiety? Where are you allowing despair or distress or exhaustion to take the place of trusting that this is your shepherd and he will provide. So third, Jesus gathers his sheep, Jesus feeds his sheep, but third I want us to dwell upon, Jesus gives his life for his sheep. And here we deal with the passage that, that we did not read, but verses 14 through 29, I want to summarize. So after, after the disciples are sent out, Mark breaks the story before, Mark, uh, before the disciples come back and tells us that the, the re report of all of this preaching comes to Herod Antipas, who is the, the ruler of the area of Galilee, and he is trying to make sense of who Jesus is. And he, he comes up with this idea that it must be the John the Baptist raised from the dead because John the Baptist beheaded, or because Herod beheaded John the Baptist in this terrible story that we read in verses 14 through 29. And so this, this story breaks to tell us the, 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 the reason and, the, and, the, and the what happened to John the Baptist. And so I want to deal a little bit with this story. Uh, who is Antipas? And then who is Herodias, uh, his wife? And then who is this woman, Salome, who dances for him? So Herod Antipas is, is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Uh, we know Herod the Great from the birth story of Jesus. This is one of his sons. And he wants uh, to be married to this other woman named Herodias. 
Uh, but Herodias was married to one of his brothers. So Herod just fixed all that, used his power, and made Herodias his wife. And Herodias's uh, daughter is Salome, and she must be uh, quite uh, beautiful. She's a young woman. And uh, she's famous in this story for, for dancing for Herod in the middle of this large banquet. And her dancing was just so technically perfect. I mean, she was, you know, uh, probably getting the 10 from the judges uh, of the floor uh, competition in the Olympics uh, that, that uh, Herod wants to give a big gift. No, I mean, we, we need to probably think about this as a little bit more sordid than that, Right. Salome is, is probably dancing in a, in a titillating way that is making Herod and all of these men watch quite, quite uh, oogled at, at her. And now here's the, here's the sick thing. Salome is a niece of Herod. This is, this is depraved stuff, all right? This is depraved stuff. Herod is being entertained in an inappropriate way by a blood relative. This is what's happening in this story. Now, why does, does Mark go to all the trouble to tell us this story between the, the, the passage of the disciples going out and the disciples coming back and being fed with the 5,000? Why does Mark interrupt his story this way? It, it's almost like he's, he's, he's broken the story again. Have we heard anything uh, to describe that before? It's, it's a Markan, what is it? Sandwich, right. We have a Markan sandwich here. Why does Mark tell us this story about Herod here? I believe that there are two reasons that we get this story about Herod and the end of John the Baptist at this particular place. The first is to condemn the anti-shepherds. And the second is to foreshadow that Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life. So I want to look at these in turn. The condemnation of the anti-shepherds. When we look at this story of Herod, there are really three characteristics of anti-shepherds that are being condemned. The first characteristic is that, John, that, that uh, Herod silences those who speak truth against them. So John the Baptist is put in prison because John the Baptist has the nerve to say to John the Baptist, what you are doing is sin, and God does not approve of it. And so what does Herod do? He uses his power to put John the Baptist in prison. He uses his power to silence the speaking of truth towards him, all right? The second thing that we see is that he lives a separated and elevated life above the people. So while Jesus is having this wonderful pastoral banquet serving all people on these green pastures by still waters, Herod is in his fortress in an invitation-only banquet where only the people who are most important, most powerful, most rich, and most able to, to help Herod can be in his company. And so we have Herod separated, living a life higher and above the people he is called to serve. And then the third characteristic we see is he is living a carnal and unrepentant life. Herod Antipas is not a person of a character that anyone should want to imitate. He is living a life of abusing people. He is living a life of taking advantage of young women. He is taking a life of excess and luxury. And so this is the anti-shepherd. He is silencing those who speak truth against him, separating himself from the people, and living a carnal and unrepentant life. Do I need to share that anti-shepherds 
still exist today? That these characteristics are still found in leaders today? So what do we do? Well, let me say this much. Do not despair. Do not lose hope when it appears that everywhere you look are anti-shepherds because these sorts of people will be held accountable. Ezekiel 34.10 says, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand. Listen, we don't always have control of the, the people who shepherd us. But we do know that the one who will judge will not lose sight of their abuses. But even more than that, do not spare because the good shepherd has come. The good shepherd has come. In contrast to Herod feeding the, the rich and the well-to-dos, Jesus came and fed all who would come, all who were in a desolate place. In, in contrast to, to Herod who took advantage of his people, Jesus spent himself for his people. The good shepherd, the one who, who is truth, the one who is with his people, and the one who is so perfect that his righteousness counts for our own is the good shepherd that has come. And because we have him, we do not need to despair. The second thing that happens in this passage is it is a foreshadowing because John the Baptist, we are told, is laid in a tomb. John the Baptist is killed and they take his body and they lay it in a tomb. And that is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we hear the words tomb. But it's not the last time. We will hear of another body laid in a tomb before the story of Mark is finished. And that person will be the good shepherd himself. You see, John the Baptist is a forerunner. He is a foreshadow of what is ahead for Jesus. Just as John the Baptist died, the good shepherd Jesus will die. But the reason is different. The reason that Jesus dies is because he came to lay his life down for the sheep. Jesus is the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a sacrifice for the sheep. Jesus came to lay his life down. As we're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. This is something no shepherd does. No shepherd dies for the sheep except the shepherd that has come from the Father to be the leader that we need. He has come to lay his life down for you and for me. And so as you face a leadership crisis, as you look everywhere, left, right, up and down, and you say, who can I trust? My trust has been violated so many times. My trust has been abused. I can't believe in anything. Why should I believe that Jesus is the good shepherd that I can trust? Friends, there is a, a word that I want to speak to you that comes from one of my favorite theologians, D.A. Carson. He says, you can trust a God that bleeds for you. 
This is the one you can trust. He bled for you. He died for you. He was laid in a tomb for you because he loves you and is committed to doing absolutely everything for your good. He saves you. He satisfies you. He has given all of himself for you. Let me invite you to trust in him. The world is in a leadership crisis, but the good shepherd has come and we are his. I want us to end with two thoughts, our great opportunity and our great comfort. First, our great opportunity. We are disciples just like the first disciples. And we live in a field of over 40 million people who have become dechurched. Listen, our call in this time is to reach the dechurched. And I want to give you a piece of optimism from the same book when uh, the great dechurching, they wrote, when asked how willing a dechurched person would be to go back to church, 51% said that they are either somewhat willing or very willing. The main takeaway here is that many de-churched evangelicals simply need a friend to invite them to church. For hundreds of thousands of de-churched evangelicals, all they need is a personal invitation to a decent church community. Do you feel that call? Do you see that opportunity? Who can you invite? Who can you gather back to the Good Shepherd. We have picked September 24th as a big invitation Sunday. I would love for you to be thinking, who could we bring to church on September 24th? And finally, I want to end with our great comfort. No matter how terrifying or disheartening the world's leadership becomes, we know who leads and who will never let us down. So I want to finish this message by reciting together the 23rd Psalm, which is on the screen. Say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.